This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Welcome to WTS Waikato, Season 2. It's a radio show and podcast about the goings-on in our region under the new normal. I'm producer Gary Farrow. Waikato University PhD student Claire Beat has been immersed in science from an early age, growing up in a family that started Whaingaroa Harbour Care. Claire has explored as far as Antarctica on her studies, and built knowledge and science that she is now putting to use here on the ground in the Waikato. She joins us for this episode of WTS. Kia ora, I'm Claire Beats. I grew up in Raglan, Whangaroa, um, and have been kind of passionate about the environment and everything from a pretty young age. I helped my dad out with harbour care plantings way back when, um, and then yeah, continued on to uni and stayed there for a little while. I did my bachelor's, master's and am coming towards the end of a PhD at Waikato Uni. So you're doing your PhD at the same time as working full time and being involved with the Piako catchment? I'm in the kind of final stages of my PhD, hoping to finish that off this year. And I'm doing... 16 hours a week for the Piako Catchment Forum, which has been really great. Now, what does that entail exactly, the Piako Catchment Forum? So across the whole Matamata Piako region, there's, I mean, it's a pretty highly modified landscape. It's a lot of farmland. So we're, our big aim is to get the community involved in restoring some native biodiversity to the area. So... There's also some like unique kahikatea stands that have really persisted over the years and so really trying to look after those precious little bits of habitat. What sort of diversity has been lost in the in the recent years? Uh, since pretty much all of it. Right. <laughs> so it's um when you look at the historic maps it's it's a little bit grim um but there are still pockets of kahikatea stands and massive wetlands that have remained untouched so it's really important for us to look after those and try and connect them up is the other big thing there is a massive peat dome wetland in the hodaki plains which people don't really have any access to and probably for the most part don't even know it exists but it is pretty unique on the global stage Kapuatai peep dome what's the situation with invertebrates in the uh, piako catchment so bugs are kind of my thing big mm-hmm. fan um i think 
you know, beyond the wetter and, you know, the Cody snails and the large uh, invertebrates that a lot of people have seen before, the invertebrates of New Zealand haven't really received a lot of attention. We do know quite a bit about the freshwater bugs, but in terms of the terrestrial bugs, there has been very little done. Uh, Calimbla or springtails are my specialty and almost no work has been done on them in New Zealand. And we have the largest springtail in the world in New Zealand. What's the largest springtail? Uh, it's Holocanthella spi. So there's a few different species. Um, and it's it's only a few millimetres big, but these guys are, they are little guys. So this one in particular is huge. And what is special about springtails? They've obviously um, gotten you interested. Yeah. Uh, so springtails are the most abundant soil arthropod on earth and they are everywhere so that in forest soils that in farm soils they're in the namib desert and where i was looking at them they're in from antarctica to the arctic so these guys are super abundant and they are everywhere and a lot of people haven't even heard about them but in places like antarctica and the arctic where there isn't really much else, these guys play a much more important role. So in Antarctica, springtails, which at maybe two millimetres long, are the largest terrestrial animal on the continent. They are the top of the food chain. Wow, because I was just thinking they would be the bottom of the food chain, that they would be almost the zooplankton of the land around if they're all around the world. Yeah, so... In the Arctic and the Antarctic are quite unique because there's just not a whole lot there. In Antarctica, on on the land, there are springtails, there are mites, and nematodes, rotifers, uh, and the little tardigrades, which everyone loves. And that's it. That is pretty much all that's there. You know, seals and penguins spend a little bit of time on land, but they're marine mammals, really not penguins but yeah so there's entire uh, an entire ecosystem a permanent ecosystem composed completely of invertebrates yeah (laughs) that's pretty cool to realize um i i think a lot of people would be surprised at given how um hardy the penguins and seals and animals like that need to be um in order to exist in antarctica it must be a challenge for these invertebrates. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Antarctica is the highest, driest, windiest, coldest continent on Earth. It is an absolute continent of extremes. So these little bugs, which have persisted there for millions of years, are very well adapted to the climate. So my PhD work was actually looking at the physiology of these bugs and seeing what kind of temperatures they can tolerate to kind of start estimating how well they're going to be able to cope with climate change. And these little guys could tolerate temperatures as low as minus 30 all the way up to plus 30 for very brief amounts of time. So they are very well adapted to such an extreme environment. 
Um, you went down to Antarctica as part of your study, didn't you? Yeah, I've been lucky enough to go down a couple of times with the University of Waikato and supported by uh, Antarctica New Zealand who look after all the logistics of travel in a very remote uh, part of the earth. So how did you travel down there? So you travel to Christchurch first off and you get to go down well, first off, I should say that Scott Base, the New Zealand patch of Antarctica, is right next door to the American McMurdo Station. And so that means that for a little country, we can team up with America and get a lot more people down and a lot more work done. So we mostly go on US military Hercules C-130 planes, which um, take about eight hours plus to fly down um, if or if you're lucky enough you get to go on a C-17 which if you take the wings off a of Hercules you can fit inside a <laughs> C-17 like these planes are massive they are what you transport your helicopters your tractors um, massive bits of equipment in um, and they do the trip in five hours Right, yeah, so, and they're big jets, so they'd be a yeah. bit more comfortable to be on board. The Hercules yeah. would be interesting to ride on that, wouldn't it, for eight hours? Yeah, though it's a little bit disconcerting. So when you're on a Hercules, they tell you that there is a point of no return. They only have so much fuel to go for about nine, ten hours, so... If you're flying south and you hit the four-hour mark, occasionally they will check in with Scott Base and find out that actually the weather at Scott Base has turned bad and so the plane will just turn around and come back to New Zealand. So you spend eight hours in the air only to end up back at Christchurch. Um, but, yeah, it is a little bit disconcerting when you're up there and... You know, you've been told that there's this so-called point of no return. But, I mean, these people are very, very good at their jobs. When you go to Antarctica, you're often working as part of a team and everyone is doing their own little bit. So I work with a lot of microbiologists that look at the microbes in the soil. I work with uh, people that look at the lichen and the moss. And, you know, there's always people working on the penguins and the seals. So everyone kind of does their own little bit and I was yeah focused on the springtails but you would share that um that knowledge and that understanding of uh soils and microbes and things like that and that obviously relates to the springtails yeah for sure so you're always you know when you're part of a team like that you do get to find out um what everyone else has been up to and it's uh, Scott Base is a pretty amazing place. Like, everyone there is just so excited to be there and so grateful for the opportunity. Everyone is super nice and so passionate about the work they're doing there. So you do get to learn a lot about all sorts of different things, like geology and all sorts of things that I wouldn't usually learn about. Were you particularly mindful of the fact that you were in Antarctica, you were in this amazing continent? Were you not distracted by the springtails, given you were, you were, you were dedicated to, uh, to, 
the study of them. I've been a couple times and I do find every time you're down there, when you're out in the field, the helicopter drops you off. You know, you've got some tents, you've got a thing of food, and you are so completely alone. It is, it's a wild feeling. And, you know, you're sitting there and you could be looking at three different glaciers around you and you you know what you're seeing but it's almost hard to comprehend it is so majestic and amazing that you know a part of you even though you're looking at it can't believe that you're looking at it Mm, it's the human brain can't comprehend some things eh? yeah it is uh it is truly spectacular um how long did you stay out in the field so uh, usually just a couple weeks. So usually like two or three weeks at a time, which, you know, comes with its own challenges because, I mean, there's no showers. You know, there's, you know, there's all sorts of things that you have to, everything you take out to the field, you have to take back. You know, you can't leave anything behind, including waste kind of thing. Right. Yes. So there are... You know, after two weeks in the field, you are ready. You are ready for a shower, you know. And there'd be, yeah, so you'd have to have a lot of storage. You'd have um, to have top-ups of supplies, I guess, while you're out there. Yeah, so it depends. Like, sometimes, because so much planning goes into these kind of things, that, you know, a helicopter will take a sling load, meaning, like, you package up, all of your gear, the food, all those, the tents and all those things. And they go into a net which hangs underneath the helicopter and that can be pre-staged out there. So there's a lot of logistics. There's a lot of planning and a lot of work that goes into us being, well, for me, being able to study these little bugs at the bottom of the earth. You know, you get to Scott Base and if the weather's good... You generally have maybe two or three days at Scott Base preparing everything. You head out to the field for two weeks. You come back. You kind of demob, put all your other gear away, and then you're out. So they are really trying to cycle um, as many people through as they can. And Scott Base only has capacity for a maximum of like a hundred people at a time. So you know they're running. They're trying to run a tight ship. So when you are out in the field, you are very conscious that you've got you've got one shot to get this work done. You know, you've got a few days in this site and you just have to work as hard as you can. So you are, you know, I was, you start early in the morning and you're up late at night because you want to try the phys- physiology experiments in the morning, in the afternoon when it's warmest, and then in the evening to see if there's variability in there. So you're really trying to make the most of this very precious amount of time that you have. You were there in the Antarctic summertime, I guess, so it was light pretty much all the time? Yeah, so light 24 hours. And so the sun just kind of moves around in a circle in the sky. And depending where you are, you might have mountains so that at night, night of sorts, the sun kind of goes behind the mountain. So you do get a little bit of that kind of diurnal feel, but 
you just kind of get used to it, really. You adapt. So you you manage to sleep all right? I I mean, you surprisingly sleep very well. They give you very cozy sleeping bags. You've been working hard all day. Like, it's not bad. Mm, your brain's ready to switch off and yep. have a recharge and mend. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Springtails, they've got six legs. They look kind of ant-like, a little bit smaller, but they're not insects, interestingly. So they are very old in evolutionary time. And they get their name from this appendage, which is generally tucked up under their abdomen. So when they're disturbed, they can flick it out and kind of jump and spin away from a disturbance, hence the springtail name. In terms of, you know, going out and finding them, if you look in your compost bin and you see masses of tiny little white bugs, chances are those are springtails. Or if you're out in the forest and you flip over a log and you see these tiny little bugs running around, you can see them with the visible eye. Chances are they're springtails. They are really important decomposers. Um, They feed on a lot of fungi, which the fungi are breaking down the wood, and they get eaten by spiders. So they're quite an important middle part of the food chain. Um, and, And somewhere like Antarctica, where there's very little else they are super important because you know there's not much there so they're decomposers in the arctic there's a little bit more biodiversity so they're a really important food source for spiders which are then eaten by birds and so they are that really crucial little middle link in the food chain everything is a little bit slower in antarctica so there's lichens which will grow like a centimetre in a hundred years. So everything is slow. Uh, The springtails, which would usually complete their life cycle within six months to a year, might take two or three years. Um, But one thing that you really have to consider is that although the air temperature is really cold, these guys are tiny. They are living on the surface of dark rocks that are heated by the sun. And so the actual environment that these little guys might be inhabiting could be a lovely 20 degrees. But the temperatures are so variable that, you know, they might get a nice 20 degrees during the daytime. And then at night, when the sun moves around, it could drop to minus 20. So being able to cope with that variability, they often produce supercooling compounds, which is like antifreezes that you might put in your car if you're living in the north. And they can just switch on the production of these antifreezes and then end up tolerating temperatures down to, yeah, minus 30 plus. In terms of your transition from being in Raglan and the Waikato to go into Antarctica, um, how was that, especially um, just as a student when you, uh, when you first went to Antarctica? Yeah, it's actually a little bit of a funny story. Um, so, you know, you get to the airport and you get to Christchurch and you're getting kitted out um, because obviously to go to Antarctica, you need a whole lot of gear 
And Antarctica New Zealand really looks after you. Uh, you wear a lot of Earth, Sea, Sky kit. Um, but when I got there, I noticed that actually my neighbour, who I grew up like two houses up from in Raglan, was actually going to be on the same flight as me. So <laughs> it was a very, very small, small kind of small world moment. Um but yeah, it's it's just wild. Like it is so hard to comprehend and so hard to explain. It's just the absolute scale of the place. Like you you get off that plane and you're looking out over an ice sheet that is the size of France. Like it is wild. So did you just sort of walk out the cargo doors at the back of the plane and Yeah, they pop the door open you walk down the stairs and it is just white everywhere that you can see you know there you're on an ice sheet there's snow everywhere and then off in the distance is the the characteristic green of scott base but it's you know there's a little bit of brown in the rocks and things but it is very white especially when you've spent so much time planning and so much time thinking about it, the reality of it is, yeah, just mind-blowing. Um, at Scott Base, did you um, see other wildlife hanging around there? Uh, it's it's pretty wicked. So there are Waddell seals just in front of base, just hanging out. They, they're pretty lazy. They don't move much. They're just these big, big, chonky fats of lard, bits of lard. Um, and they are they're pretty cute. One of the other things that um, I was so grateful to see, so when we were at Scott Base once, we're hanging out in the pub because, you know, this place has a pub. The Scott Base pub. Oh, my gosh. It's the Scott Base pub. Hop <laughs> uh, in there for a cold one. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> uh, so some of the other scientists there, they've got an underwater drone, which they hooked up. They hooked up the footage of to the pub TV. And so we're sitting in the pub, we're having a drink, living the life, and watching this footage of under the ice sheet in front of Scott Bakes. And it is unreal. There is so much life under that ice sheet that you just don't see. And you just don't know about. There's these corals, there's these sea stars, feather stars, there's obviously the seals hanging out, which they come up to the camera because they're so curious and the footage and the diversity under there is much much higher than on land so yeah it's but you don't really see it and a lot of people including myself didn't even really know about it everything about antarctica is just on a whole nother level did you get to see um penguins and stuff as well when you were there i was lucky enough on one of the trips, I went and stayed at Cape Hallett, which is an Adelie penguin colony, and they're ridiculously cute. They are ridiculous. I mean, pretty smelly, you know. <laughs> There's a lot of a lot of feces, but you know, you're in your tent. You wake up in the morning. You zip open the tent door, and a few feet away is this little penguin, like looking at you, like, "What's up, to? <laughs> what are you doing? Like, can I can I join? Like, it's." Yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, if you're not at a penguin colony, the silence 
is incredible. There's no mosquitoes. There's no flies. There's no birds chirping. There's, you know, I think Scott, um, Robert Falcon Scott, one of the early Antarctic explorers, when he saw the dry valleys, he just thought, well, there's nothing here. This is, you know, a place devoid of all life. It is an incredible landscape. And I guess I should say one of the things that people don't know is that near Scott Base there are the McMurdo Dry Valleys, which are the largest ice-free area on the continent. So there are these massive desert valleys just covered in stone and sand and no ice. And that is where you find most of the invertebrate life in these you know that's where you find all the moss and the lichen and things like that so they're these incredible little bits of the continent why isn't there ice in those uh, in those valleys so in the ice instantly turns to gas so it just sublimates away and you've got the catabatic winds that are constantly just shifting things through there um yeah, so any snow that falls either quickly melts or sublimates away. Mm, so the moisture can't even settle and freeze. No, it is the driest place on earth. And I mean, your skin gets so dry down there. So you have to take like a lot of moisturizer, a lot of lip balm, a lot of sunscreen, because although it's really cold, you know, you're getting burnt because the sun is out all day. So there's just all these little things that make it so completely different from anywhere else it's so otherworldly down there you know nasa scientists go down there to uh you know try and simulate what it would be to live on mars that's how otherworldly this place is in antarctica in you know the the southern victoria land the area i was in there are three species of springtail and across the whole mcmurdo dry valleys there is one species of springtail there's a bunch of different genetic genetically isolated populations but one species of springtail across hundreds of k's of landscape and in new zealand in your compost bin you might have four or five i mean it's the scales for everything are so different and then we've got farmland we've got different kinds of forest there's alpine you know there's there's a lot of work and a lot of science to be done so if anyone wants to get on board with some springtail science you know it's not a bad time the piaco catchment forum is on facebook it's on instagram you're welcome to email me at piaco catchment at gmail.com if you're interested in any kind of restoration project it is it's such a great time to get into restoration in New Zealand. It's really starting to pick up pace. And there are so many farmers who are getting on board and doing some amazing work, retiring massive amounts of potentially productive land and putting it back into forest. So, you know, I'd really like to applaud and encourage those kind of people. But anyone can get involved. Thank you for listening to this episode of WTS Waikatoa. If you liked what you heard, you can follow the show on Facebook and find it wherever you get your podcasts. 
Thanks to Free FM, the Community Access Media Alliance, and New Zealand On Air for making this show happen. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.